This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Good afternoon, and welcome to Suite 212, with me, your host, Juliet Jakes, here on Resonance 104.4 FM, which this month is celebrating 20 years of intelligent, inventive and innovative broadcasting across London and online. This show, putting the arts in their social, political and historical contexts, has been broadcasting here on Resonance for nearly a year. Inspired by the excellent discussion programmes on politics, culture and sport that I'd heard here on Residence 104.4 FM. And it's been a joy to work with the station, sharing an aim to produce arts coverage that cannot be found anywhere else in Britain's increasingly risk-averse broadcast landscape. Given that conservatism, we here at Suite 212 take a variety of approaches to our hour-long slot. Often, we'll invite several guests to discuss a historical cultural scene or contemporary issue that interests us. Sometimes we'll invite specific individuals whose work we like to talk at length about their practice. Today, I'm talking to the Canadian author Sheila Hetty, who became one of my favourite writers back in 2013, when I first read her novel, How Should a Person Be? Soon, she became a close personal friend after we met in London for her tour of the book, Sheila interviewed me for the book Women in Clothes, which she co-authored and edited with Heidi Ulevitz and Leanne Shapton in 2014. And a year later, she interviewed me again for the epilogue of my book, Trans and Memoir, and hosted me at Trampoline Hall, a barroom lecture series that she founded back in 2001, and co-hosted Misha Gluberman in Toronto, which has sold out every month since. During my visit there, I gave a lecture entitled The Prime Minister and the Pig, the contents of which cannot be repeated here. Sheila's back in London to promote her most recent book, Motherhood, published by Henry Holt and Harville Secker, and this time I have the honour of interviewing her, talking not just about her latest work, but her entire career. Sheila, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you. How are you? Okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> a little jet lagged. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. It's great to have you here. Um, I thought we could uh, sort of structure this this interview relatively chronologically. Um, you know, often with uh, literature shows and podcasts, you know, people are just invited to talk about their latest work. And given that we have an hour, I think it's always interesting to contextualise that work in in the course of somebody's sort of entire career. And hopefully we can kind of chart the evolution of a kind of writing style and a set of concerns that that you explore. So um, I thought maybe we could... um, we could talk about the first book that you published, uh, The Middle Stories, back in 2002, um, which was published by Dave Eggers at McSweeney's. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is one of the few of your works I've not had a chance to read yet. So uh, I wonder if you could maybe um, sort of just talk um, a bit for our listeners about kind of how you came to writing, kind of what made you want to write Um whether you felt you kind of had to write, because I think a lot of writers do, um, and how that fed into the middle stories. 
Yeah, I wrote those um, stories when I was in university at the University of Toronto studying art history and philosophy. And I went to university sort of late-ish. I went in my early 20s, um, which felt later than <laughs> than my friends. Um, and I was living alone, and then I lived in my father's basement for a while when I ran out of money. And um, uh, that's... so. I started writing the stories as a way of just thinking about um, how to write a sentence and how to get to the end of a story. And so I would, I would sit down and I'd write five or six stories very, very quickly, just trying to get to the end of each one. And I wrote hundreds of stories like that, I guess, in a, an attempt to develop a style and a way of, um, I don't know, just... A, a, a way of finding an arc but it was and then they would end kind of abruptly just as soon, when the whenever the story ended it would be because I had no more sentences and I was just like okay well that's the end and then I would start the next one and um, it was just a way of learning how to follow my instincts and a way of learning how to um, I don't know I had no idea how to edit at the time I didn't know how I would make something better so my my thought was if I can't edit, I just have to write a lot and then just cut out the ones that are bad and keep the ones that are good. And the collection came about because um, I published, I sent a few of those stories while well, sending them to journals all over Canada and nobody was publishing them. And then I, um, I sent four or five to McSweeney's because they had this line at the time, which was, we'll publish the things that nobody else wants to publish. So I was like, well, that sounds like me. <laughs> that sounds like where I'm at. So I sent them to to Dave Eggers and he wrote me back and said we'll publish all five and then after that there was a Canadian publisher called Martha Sharp um, who's at House of Anansi which is a, a very um, a very good literary small press that sort of was founded in the 70s by Andache and Atwood and these great um, Canadian writers and she said do you have any more stories and I said I've got tons of more stories and, and she said I'd like to publish a collection so, so then I brought 30 of them together and that's how the book came about yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you talk about kind of not just kind of formulating the writing of sentences, but the act of getting to the end. I think every, not just writer, I think anyone doing anything creative, no matter how much work they kind of complete and put out into the world, I think everyone has some sort of insecurity about never finishing anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also just you have this idea that the ending has to be that the ending if the ending is not exactly right then the whole thing falls apart somehow and the question of like what is the right ending is also really hard to figure out and the only thing i could figure out then is if the sentences aren't coming like if they're coming really quickly and then they suddenly stop coming i guess that has to be the ending you know um because there must be some reason that the sentences have co stopped coming yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find as well that um, often when I write short fiction, I don't know what the ending is going to be. And I kind of I just sort of set up a place to kind of start digging, as it were, uh, and dig a certain way. And um, and then you make discoveries kind of through the writing. Yeah. Yeah. I never had any idea of where I was going in those. I never knew more than a sentence ahead where I was going. Right, right. Yeah. Um, 
so presumably you you would find points where you you found you've written yourself into a dead end or a corner or or the end yeah <laughs> or just an end yeah <laughs> okay the dead end and the end may be the same place well absolutely um i mean somebody once said i can't remember who it was that a short story is just an ending uh, oh that's was, neat was that your experience mm-hmm. um i don't know what a short story is i don't feel like there are like other short stories that i've read they they don't like go into character or (laughs) plot or anything it's just the atmosphere of being lonely alienated unhappy and uh you know repeat 30 times (laughs) (laughs) well um let's move on to talk about your first novel Ticknor which you've said was like you've said a few years ago was actually your favorite of your books and the hardest to write I think you said you you worked at a rate of about 25 pages a year yeah <laughs> That's sort of what it turned out to be. <laughs> Which is, I, I, I think, will be, again, familiar to any other writers <laughs> listening. Um, and I think in retrospect, it feels quite different to your subsequent works. Um, you know, I, I read Titner a year or two ago. For listeners, it's loosely based on the story of the American scientific historian, William Hickling Prescott. Um, who was around in the first half of the 19th century, uh, who I don't think is a familiar figure in the UK at all. Um, and not particularly familiar in America, unless no, you're a sure. historian of Spain or Mexico or something. Um, so it's loosely based on uh, Prescott's biographer, uh, George Ticknor. Um, and... Um, in particular, sort of Ticknor's resentment at Prescott's kind of success. And the story is like Ticknor sort of planning to go to a dinner party uh, with Prescott. Um, and to me, it felt like a really kind of beautiful response to a lot of kind of North American 19th century literature. I could definitely feel echoes of Herman Melville in there. Uh, but also um, a writer that you and I both hold very dear, which is the um, sort of Austrian modernist author Thomas Bernhard. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit, if you'd like to, about the um, the sort of intellectual and creative influences on that story, and then we'll kind of move on to to where your your writing has gone since. Yeah, I consider that sort of my modernist book. It's it was definitely inspired by um, that sort of twentieth century um, stream of consciousness, interior monologue type of book that you know you see in Wolf and James and and then like later Thomas Bernhard and, and other such authors and yeah it all takes place in Tickner's head and he's trying to decide whether or not to go to Prescott's dinner party and he feels resentment because Prescott is such a great success and he's not um, that is sort of my own invention because in real life Tickner was a success I made him a failure in my novel and um, in in real life Tickner actually wrote a biography of his friend Prescott and the biography is full of love and admiration and and I I didn't read it straight through I read parts of it and I just was feeling because I just wanted the tone of it to come into my book I didn't want I didn't need all the facts I just wanted his the way that he wrote his sentences to be the way I wrote my sentences um, but yeah it was so strange not to find any envy or jealousy or resentment or anything which you would imagine would be there between two writers especially if one is writing about a more successful writer which which Prescott was and their friends and so I think my book was like the under belly or the subconscious or the you know the shadow or whatever the shadow of Tickner's actual biography of Prescott um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it does something that I've I've done as well, which is to take kind of real life um, artistic figures and yeah, to try and kind of explore their motivations and the things that you think might be lying beyond the text. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've done this, it's caused me certain sort of ethical dilemmas there's one one short story i wrote a few years ago which portrays a weimar era artist um and kind of basically makes him a sort of avatar for an awful lot of misogyny and transphobia and unchallenged sort of prejudices and assumptions which may well have been completely unfair on him right. um i sort of you know I, I i don't know if any of his family would ever read this piece of work or get in touch but um obviously you know tickner and prescott you're you're going back further than that but but did did that ever present any um, kind of ethical dilemmas for you writing about sort of historical figures in a fi- fictional setting? Yeah, but not deep ethical dilemmas because they're dead. Yeah. So and <laughs> and and the the people that care about Prescott and Tickner don't seem to have found their didn't seem to have found their way to my book. So there was like a Tickner society. Somehow, I was worried when I got when I published that they would come up you know with swords and you know got off my head but they didn't seem to even notice or care so I and I think part of the reason that the next book that I wrote dealt with real living people and and portraying them as opposed to dead historical figures is because I wanted more ethical dilemma um, dilemmas in my own life and in my own writing I almost didn't like by the end the idea that it absolutely didn't matter that I had transformed these people so greatly well, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that feels like a good place to start moving on to, to you know, what feels to me like a sort of next phase in your writing life. Um, and I'd actually like to lead into that by talking about a book you published in 2011 called The Shares of Where the People Go. And this is a series of interviews with your friend Misha Gluberman, who I mentioned earlier, with regards to your lecture series at Trampoline Hall, Um you know, Misha is is obviously a very key friendship for you, as we will come on to talk about. But um, I'm very interested in talking to you about the role of the interview for writers. I mean, I, I've done a lot of journalism myself and I've interviewed a lot of people. Um, and it's a really interesting way of understanding other people's creative processes and then feeding into your own. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about the chairs where the people go and maybe what you learned from, from that project and like why you did it. Well, those are two separate questions, the role of the interview and, with the artist and the book with Misha, because Misha's not an artist mm. um, and he's not a writer. And he doesn't, he, he sort of leads um, workshops and charades and improv, but he doesn't create objects of art, you know? And he, he's also not a, a big reader, but he's like one of the most intelligent people and interesting people I know. And I thought, I want to write a book that, that the book that he would write if he was a writer. And I want to write the book that he would read if he, if he read anything other than um, self-help and business books and, you know, <laughs> books that have great utility. Um, so the, the book actually started as a piece of fiction called The Moral Development of Misha. And it was going to be about the moral development of Misha. And, and then I just, um, I kind of realized that it was just sounding very fake. Um, and, and I thought, well, why don't I just go directly to Misha and, and, um, 
and write the book in collaboration with him. And what I did was he would talk and I would type. And so the, there's like 72 chapters in the book and each one is sort of a monologue. It ends up sort of being a monologue where he's talking about a subject like monogamy or improvisation or how to get loud bars out of your neighborhood or just all his interests. And it was it's sort of like Tickner in some sort of way because it is like the interior of this man's head, um, but it's a real man, not a made-up man. Um, and I got the sense when I was writing the book of like, you know, everybody has this, has this, all these thoughts and all these ideas, but then there's a limitation to them. Like there is a, there is a, a boundary out, outside of which they don't stray. And I feel like this book was like, in some ways, like about the vastness of the mind and also the little littleness of an individual mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe we could just take a moment to talk about interviews more generally. You did a lot of work, you did a lot of interviews for The Believer magazine. Were you were you their interviews editor? Is, yes. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk a bit about whether you feel that interviews are kind of useful for writers, whether you think they're particularly interesting for readers, um, you know, from both of those angles, what you get out of them. And if there are any particular kind of particularly good or particularly bad interviews that you did that have stuck with you. Yeah. Um... I think like anything, they can be good or bad. Like it can be like, are novels good or bad? Well, some are good and some are bad. And it's the same thing with interviews. And if you're being interviewed a lot, you feel it. You feel like, okay, well, that was a bad interview. And the reason it's bad is because you said a million things you've said before. Um, or you've oversimplified the kinds of things that you shouldn't be oversimplifying when you're talking about your process. And then the really good ones are where things you haven't said before and you're not oversimplifying and you're actually like doing justice to the complexity of the process and the complexity of what you made. Um, and it kind of, but you never know what you're going into. And I think some people avoid, some writers and artists avoid doing interviews altogether for the fear of making things seem too simple mm. and, and, and sort of degrading the work and degrading the work that went into the work. Um, but for myself, I like the risk. I like, th and I like the opportunity for something to be really good. So I'd rather take the risk and have a, a bad interview on the hopes that there could be a great interview because, um, I like connecting with people, um, through interviewing and being interviewed, um, it's very hard in life and in general conversation to keep the focus of a conversation on art. It always ends up like moving into gossip um, <laughs> with friends. And so this is just a way of talking about art without it like moving towards, you know, what some mutual friend did. That's that's a topic for outrage or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I I said I wanted to move the conversation on to. On to your next next book or your next novel, How Should a Person Be? Uh, like I said, at the top of the show, this was where I came to you. I think this was your kind of breakthrough book, certainly here in the UK. It was the first book that was actually published in mine in the UK. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it attracted a lot of attention here and in North America and elsewhere. Uh, and... You know, it documented a number of important friendships for you, um, and it did so in this sort of quite auto-fictional form where the central character shared your name, Sheila Hetty, and kind of aspects of your life. Sheila. Uh, yeah, sorry, it's just Sheila, yeah. Um, uh, but maybe we could talk a little bit about why you took that approach and like, how, how it evolved. Um, I, don't, I don't know 100% why. It evolved very slowly from... Um, from sharing a life with Margot Williamson, who's a painter who you know, and you stayed in her apartment when you were in Toronto. Yes. <laughs> well, hers and Misha's apartment, they're, they're a couple. Um, I think there was just a feeling of a desire to 
to write with other people rather than to write alone. And writing with other people had to start with living with other people, thinking with other people, talking with other people, transcribing conversations with other people. So there was just like this opening up in me. And I was very inspired by the ideas of open source, um, you know, um, Linux software versus Microsoft. And, and just the idea that in this age, we can collaborate much more easily with other people and that collaboration moves things forward. So they have this like way of talking about it in programming circles, which is, I forget the phrase now, but it's basically like more eyes means fewer bugs. Bugs are found, and I can't remember the exact phrase, but bugs are found more quickly if you have more eyes on it, right? Um, and I felt the same could be true of art. Like if I have lots of friends reading my drafts and if I have um, lots of people involved in the artistic process along with me, the bugs will be found quicker. And and I think it did sort of, sort of work that way because... Um, yeah, because of the, because of all the drafts that Margot read, and she kept saying to me when I was using our name, she kept saying like you're doing this, what what you're doing is very strange and very weird, and I had no idea that it was strange or weird. It just seemed like the most obvious thing to do if I was writing in some ways about us, even if I was fictionalizing it. You know, why wouldn't I use our names? Why would I change them? There were just, it, there wasn't a good enough reason to change them, you know. And there, and Margot had this thing. She would always say to me like. It's more vulnerable to change the names than to leave them Sheila and Margot because if you change the names, it seems like you're hiding something. Mm. Whereas if you don't change the names, it doesn't seem like you're hiding anything. So she felt it would be more vulnerable to change the names. So that was a big. That was like finding a bug in this in the program maybe that I wouldn't have found on my it own. It becomes maybe. something of. It becomes a different challenge to the reader, doesn't it? And it forces readers to think a little bit about how they read novels because I think you know reading a novel. And going into the process of that reading, thinking, oh, how much does this reflect or convey the author's life? That, to me, is very rarely the most interesting thing about a novel anyway. Yeah. But by using, by, by not changing those names, I think you you raise that question to the reader more explicitly because, um, you know, the reader might find themselves thinking, well, how much of this is Sheila and how much of this is quote-unquote Sheila? Yeah. Um, and does it matter? Yeah, and then you ask yourself, well, why do I care? I don't know these people. Why does that matter to me? And and I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about like it's much easy, more easy to gossip than to talk about art. And so if it's and it, it, the same way in in your relationship to a book, it's much more easy to just think what's true and what's the gossip than how did they make this or why did they make it this way? Yeah, um, something you've mentioned in other interviews regarding how should a person be is the influence of kind of reality television programs like The Hills and kind of other non-literary sources. I'd be really interested to hear more about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I was really, I don't think I would have written this book if it, if it wasn't for the example of reality TV, which I really loved. And um, and I loved it because it was so confusing um, and and because I could never understand how these shows were made exactly, and especially with The Hills, which was quite artful in the first few seasons and was made with a lot of um, a lot of deliberate love by the producers. It wasn't uh, a cynical show. You, I had the sense of like the girls being neither characters nor themselves. And then they're sort of playing themselves, which is something that we do a lot in our culture. We sort of perform ourselves for other people. And that idea of 
playing yourself or performing yourself or putting yourself into situations in order f- to be seen in those situations just all came into the writing of the book. And when I was writing the book, I kept creating these scenarios that Margot and I would live together in order for me to write about them, which which is a kind of documentary thing thing but also that's what reality tv is they have to create scenarios structured reality i think they yeah, call it yeah right so i don't know i just and i liked how those shows in the beginning were so much about women and like women talking to women and and almost like with the hills like the nothingness that is said the sort of those girls don't talk about anything and i loved that i love that we were still watching them and listening to them even though they weren't <laughs> saying anything they're talking about the color of a shirt it just felt like i loved the nullness of it you know <laughs> yeah um i wanted to talk a bit more about this this sort of concept of auto fiction i mean we've already touched upon this this idea that you know readers often will read novels with the kind of author's biography kind of lurking in the background and there was an interesting thing that happened kind of as modernism i think transitioned to sort of late modernism more so than postmodernism, but I think it fed into that as well. Which was this sort of idea that's outlined in an essay that made a big impact on me as a student, which is um, The Age of Suspicion by Natalie Sarot, uh, where she talks about how readers just don't really believe characters in the same way that they used to maybe in the 19th century, and that it was impossible to avoid your characters being read as kind of reflections of a part of an author's consciousness and actually a writer would do well to just embrace that hmm. and a lot of other writers who i find very interesting kind of british neo-modernist authors we did a show on this earlier in the year um was sort of very consciously and deliberately uh forefronting writing as as drawing drawing on the self um and i think you know how should a person be fed into fed into a really interesting wave of kind of autofiction that we could maybe trace back to Chris Krause, who we'll come on to talk about in a minute. Uh, but, you know, this this sort of autofiction, I feel, was quite prevalent in the early 2010s. Um, and I'm not really seeing so much of it now, maybe due to to certain sort of political changes that have mm-hmm. taken place since that maybe maybe give writers a sense of, of, of more sort of um, explicit um, looking at external political yeah, they situations. Go beyond themselves yeah, more. Um, I mean... Uh, does, does, does this kind of interest you? This idea that there was a there was a kind of moment for autofiction in the early 2010s was this something you maybe felt aware of? Or I mean, I was aware of it after I published How Should a Person Be. I wasn't aware of it before, but then people like Ben Lerner and um, um, Nausgaard and obviously, you know, these various writers started publish. We all published around the same time and were referred to in the same sentences and so on. Um, and Chris Krause's book, I Love Dick, is something that I read when I was working on the book. I was living in New York in the summer of 2008 at the home of these academics who were away for the summer. And they had that book on their bookshelf. And of course, of the 300 books, I picked up I Love Dick because how can you resist that title? Um, and read it. And I, I'm not sure what 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 specific influence it had, but it blew my mind, you know? And, and I'm sure it had an impact on... How, what I was writing and how I was writing and the permission that I felt to write in certain ways. Um, 
I don't know what to say. I mean, I listened to your show with Chris, which I loved, and I really like what she said on, on it about how autofiction is is a category that's basically, for her, that's what literature is and that everything else is genre and that um, that that in fact you can trace this so-called autofiction back to the early beginning of literature in some way and that even in the 20th century, like you wouldn't think, okay, I mean, the writer that I loved was one that she mentioned, which is Christopher Isherwood. And you... I, w- I wouldn't have put him in that category, but of course he belongs in that category. And then Henry Miller, who is somebody that I also love, um, I wouldn't have thought of him as autofiction, but of course he he belongs in that category. So it's to me, it's sort of an unstable category. And then to say people have stopped writing it, I think, I mean, like Rachel Cusk's books kind of feel like that to me. And 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 I don't know if it ever stops. The books always have their the author sort of can have the author prominent in them. I don't think people have stopped writing it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was thinking more about the kind of industry around literature yeah. has maybe shifted its focus. Maybe. Um, I don't know. We don't have any of their representatives here, so I guess we'll never know. <laughs> but <laughs> We don't want them here. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. We will, uh, we will, of course, be doing doing shows about the publishing industry You'll uh, be doing in a the panel. future. Yeah, almost certainly. With all the representatives. Um, yeah, completely. Every single one. Yeah, we're going to try and cram every every publisher in the UK into the uh, into the resident studio. So yeah. um, the sound engineer is very pointedly looking away from me at this point. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um but yeah, it does feel like, you know, in the age of like Brexit and Trump, like you less want to just write books that are necessary that that are as solipsistic and narcissistic as the early 2010s, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I was a little off. I was I was doing very directly autobiographical writing at that time, of course, and uh, after after publishing my memoir, which of course you you did the epilogue with me for that, uh, where you interviewed me about the contents of the book. Um, after that, I mean, I just felt that I just never wanted to write about myself again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we all feel like that. It's quite an exhausting. <laughs> all you have to do, is, all you have is to do it once to never want to do it again. <laughs> but did you enjoy writing? How should a person be? Yeah, um, I did. I mean, I enjoyed my life at that time. I mean, it was hard to write, but it was it was fun to live. And I mean, one of the interesting things about the book is. Um, uh, for for the character Sheila, you know, writing writing this book is helping with with a huge block on another piece of work that has been lurking in the background for a really long time. Um, and you know, after after how should a person be? Um, you stay finally stage your play. All our happy days are stupid, which you'd been working on for quite a long time. Well, I hadn't been continued working on it I, I wrote it 10 years earlier yeah. in very quickly <laughs> <laughs> which yeah had been kind of had been around for a long time I should say yeah and it, they did try to dramaturge it for a few years and it that didn't really work out um yeah because you 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 actually started writing for the stage didn't you um yeah I mean, I, your career I start I studied playwriting at the National Theatre School of, Mon- in, of Canada, which is in Montreal. And I had um, the idea that I was going to be a playwright, and all my favorite writers at that time were playwrights. Um, Joe Orton and uh, being one of my favorites. Um, yeah, I just wanted to like look like him <laughs> in all my other pictures. <laughs> like, I just want to look like 
all I want to do is, you know, have sex in bathhouses in the <laughs> in Britain in the in the sixties, you know, um, as a as a gay famous playwright. Like to me, that seemed like the greatest possible life you could ever lead. Yeah, but that didn't really work out <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah. Um... I mean, something you and I talked about a lot when we first met was was the relationship of writers to the internet and particularly social media. Uh, I think you and I both um, were trying to find something interesting to do with Twitter, to find an interesting way of presenting oneself in that particular medium. Um, the thing I tended to use it for was to present a more sort of rounded and complicated selfhood uh, because, you know, in my journalistic work, I was just being asked to write about trans issues and, and particularly my own gender reassignment, um, which I found quite constraining. And I found Twitter interesting as a way of um, of being able to sort of very quickly and in multifarious directions um, uh, present present a much more complicated persona and personality um and i think you and i both tired of twitter around about the same time and i wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about why why you used it and why you stopped using it um i think i used it actually because i didn't want to fall behind in culture i didn't want to be somebody who didn't know twitter or facebook i was like well it's important just to be of your time even if it feels unnatural and i think um I'm glad I did it, and I'm glad I understand it and experienced all the emotions that it brings up. But I think I'm not of my time in that way, mm. actually, it turns out. <laughs> so you kind of have to accept that. I don't like the speed of it. I don't like the throwawayness of it. I don't like I don't like the show-offiness of it. Um, Every time I would tweet, I would just like ask myself like, why did you? Yes. Why did you need that call yes. for? Why are you trying to call people to you know look at you? It just seemed so dis so transparent a call a cry for attention. Every time I tweeted, I just became sick of it. Yeah. Um, so once you see through that, you can't have fun with you it anymore. You can't go back. No, no, that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> um, and I quit Twitter, and I actually I rejoined Twitter about a year and a half later, and it was it was just after the. Um, the eu referendum and all of my friends were just killing each other over the labor party and the, the, the first thing one of my journalistic friends just said to me is like why have you come back now and i just took one <laughs> look at it and just thought i don't need this in my head i no. just don't no um, i mean i'm back on with the radio show but you know i just kind of say hey we've done a show now yeah um, and not much else really and make kind of private jokes with about four people and that's that's really that's it. fun uh, that's that's fine for me <laughs> that's as much as much as i want to do with that um, let's move on then to talking about your new book, Motherhood, sure. um, which, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, here on Resonance 104.4 FM, uh, has has just been published um, by, I think, Henry Holt in North America and Harville Secker here. Mm -hmm. um, I'd actually like to start by just asking you briefly about the children's book that you had commissioned by McSweeney's in 2011, which is called We Need a Horse. Mm -hmm. And I want to introduce Motherhood by talking about We Need a Horse, because Motherhood is a book that deals with a narrator who is sort of in her late 30s and is 
really struggling with the question of whether or not to have children and whether or not she wants to do so and if not why she doesn't want to and what the sort of implications of that are um and so i think you know somebody who's interested in that perspective writing writing a book for children uh, i think is really interesting and maybe you could talk a little bit about how we need a horse came about uh and what it was like to write it and kind of you know if there are any children in your life you were writing for or or not um, yeah, so they commissioned, they started a, a line of children's books and they asked me to write a, a children's book and I thought, well, this will be easy. And <laughs> it was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do because it's really hard to put yourself back in the mind of, let's say, a five-year-old to remember what does it feel like to inhabit that brain, you know, and therefore what kind of stories do you want? And so I wrote all these stories and they all were just wrong, bad, not good. And then I went out for drinks with a ex-girlfriend of mine and she was sort of not literally crying but basically crying about how she didn't have a partner and she didn't have children and her life wasn't what it should be and you know she's this brilliant beautiful woman and I thought why are you upset about your life like and I went home and I wrote this story for her and it ended up being the one that they wanted to publish when I sent them a bunch. And now I can say, like, well, that was the best one, but I didn't realize it was the, the the right one. I sent them, like, three or four, and Eggers chose that one. And it really was this piece that just said, like, I think the point of the piece was, like, there's nothing wrong with you. This is what I want to say to her. And, um, and we need a horse. That sentence comes because this horse is asking, like, why was I made a horse and not some other animal? And the answer is like, well, we needed a horse. And so that's what she was sort of saying. Why was I made this woman without children and a partner? And I was like, well, we needed this woman who was without children and a partner. And and that to me is like, you know, in some ways what motherhood is also sort of saying, like, there's nothing wrong with you with you know not even with not wanting to have children but not with with not knowing you know there's something so threatening about people not knowing what they want to do with their lives or not and then it's like it's okay not to know and it's okay to ask the question for 300 pages because for some people it is a question for 300 pages and i think that's i mean that's what makes literature interesting as an extended exploration of something that the author doesn't yet know and is asking a question that other people might want to think through i mean one reason why i uh, very quickly kind of tired of journalism and particularly opinion journalism is the level of certainty to right. it and you know you'd have a sort of 700 word op-ed where it's like yeah we should definitely bomb this country in the middle east and nothing bad will happen yeah um and i would always read you know i mean i'm sort of straw manning slightly and taking a sort of slightly extreme example but you know i'd always read um a lot of journalism and and see the sort of certainty that it was it was kind of projecting and just think how on earth can you be so sure of this and what's always interested me in literature of course is is the exact opposite the level of of uncertainty and you know the feeling that you don't you get the feeling that an author doesn't always know where where they're going Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and that's i think that's the experience of consciousness is is there's like you think one thing and then you think another thing and you think another thing it's this constant process it's not I have this thought and now it's this solid thing in my head that I'm going to carry around for the rest of my life like that's just not how the brain works and life comes in and complicates any thoughts you might have and um, growing up changes all the thoughts you have too so 
Yeah, I mean, what I found interesting in Motherhood is, is, is you know, is, is the central character is, is very compelling. You know, the central character is a writer in her late 30s who lives with her boyfriend in Toronto uh, and is, is, you know, is trying to think through exactly this question of whether or not to have children. But what I kind of feel the narrator is doing through the book is not just trying to find ways to answer that question, but also trying to find a voice and style with which to express express those anxieties and explore them um and one of the things i like most about the book is is i feel it uses you know very very kind of simple language to explore very complicated ideas you know it's not it's not a kind of it's it's not a sort of difficult book linguistically at all mm-hmm. um which i think allows allows the reader very directly to the ideas you're exploring yeah i remember when i was a kid i used to like memorize i'd like try to teach myself words big words you know i had a book of them and and i would be so stressed out like when i was like 11 or whatever like i don't know enough big words to be a writer (laughs) and it was it was a big problem in my in my for my for me and and i kind of realized like ah that's not the point you Mm -hmm. know the point is not the most to use the most difficult words in the english language you know in some ways it's just the way you put the you know you just have to put the words together right yeah, I mean, in contemporary British literature, we've just outsourced all big words to Will Self. And I think that works well for everybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> he seems happy. Everyone else seems happy. So, um, you know, I, yeah. I worked in a hairdressing salon for a while um, back in maybe 20, 2009 or something. And uh, there was this this hairdresser that I worked with and she was an older woman. And I gave her, I can't remember, I think I gave her Tickner or something. She wanted to read one of my books and she sort of gave it back to me and she said, oh, I'm sure that this is really good, but it's sort of beyond me. And I just felt so sad. I thought, mm. I don't want to write books that this woman who I like so much can't read. Like, that just seems like I'm doing something wrong, you know? So, yeah, I feel like with 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 this book, that's one of the things that I wanted. I, I didn't want it to forbid readers from entering it yeah i mean i think both you and i have you know interesting things to say about our families reading our books um my mum used to read my guardian um articles and in fact used to comment on them um under the name jay's mum uh which was <laughs> very amazing. awkward and very strange it was like being called in for your dinner in front of like thousands of people um, did you tell her to stop um, or did you find it charming and you let it happen? Uh, kind of both. Um, <laughs> I mean, that that was that was kind of. I mean, it was, I what don't would know she what to say make of under it, really. Jay's mom. Would she say like, "What a beautiful I mean, it piece"? Was, it was only. Uh, she's just like, "Oh, you haven't done your research. This is terrible. You've written this article five times now." Um, no, I mean, it was it was when I wrote specifically about my family. Oh, she okay. Would comment on the the episodes when uh, when I did this. She didn't just come on and just say, "Oh, look, look April Ashley was a much better trans memoirist. This is rubbish. Why are you doing?" this um, did she correct your stories and say actually it happened this way or uh no not quite fortunately oh, because good. it would have been very awkward wouldn't it? <laughs> she also used to read my twitter feed um which which is another big reason why i stopped using twitter like once i found out my <laughs> mum was was reading it was kind of all over did it all uh, did it come out of her pride in you to follow you um in this way um 
I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, I was publishing in The Guardian, which is a very left-wing paper, and my parents have always read The Daily Mail, which right. is like the antithesis of that. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it was probably more just like trying to understand my world. That's but, nice, um, though. That's generous. But we, we spoke before, and you told me that your mother liked motherhood. Um, and I wonder if we could expand on that a bit. I'd be interested to hear what that meant to you. Um, it meant a lot to me because... I was writing that book in a way for her. Um, and, you know, I sort of say in the beginning of the book, I mean, the book is um, this mixture between, you know, fiction and reality. But I, one of the true things is that I, and was that I was writing this book to sort of solve some problems, some um, sadness that I've always seen in my mother. And, and, you know, in the book, I, I write that I want my mother never to cry again. Now, that's not something that I actually think in reality that a book can do or should necessarily do. But, yeah, the fact that it m- moved her and in some ways she said she feels different in the world as a result of the book is like the best possible thing. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And she actually I haven't said this anywhere, but she actually like, you know, she's in her late 60s, but she um, entered a bodybuilding competition last year my mother's this very prim Hungarian Jewish doctor you know she's not like it's like the craziest thing that you could imagine it's like the queen of England like entering a bodybuilding competition you like you just do not expect well there's a reality that. TV show in that I think that we would both watch but, I know yeah. I don't know I just the, and the fact that her that there was so much change to see her like kind of be brave in that way and bold in that way and different in that way was like I sort of thought I was can I take credit for that a little bit you know and she says yes so <laughs> well then take the credit yeah yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I mean that's 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 incredible and I'm slightly floored by that I'm not quite sure well, she didn't win the... because she was 20 years older than everybody else but everyone told her like that she was an inspiration and they said oh my mother just sits on the couch and here you are you know in a bikini on stage with like a spray tan and muscles exactly I mean I think if that's been your journey you don't necessarily need to win you know we've we've all seen cool runnings right I mean I went home and I got a gym membership I'm like if my mother can do this I have no excuse no absolutely (laughs) yeah Um, no I think I think that's fair (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay so so let's um Let's pull the conversation back a bit then um, towards some of the other um, responses to the book. Um, I've picked up a quote here from The New Yorker, uh, which describes the book as a kind of diary of a divided mind, which serves as both a record of deliberation and an insurance policy against an adverse outcome by guaranteeing that the struggle to understand and obey, or the narrator's struggle to understand and obey the mandate of her soul will end either way in a birth, even if what is born is made of ink and paper rather than of flesh and blood. Um, And, you know, one of the key themes in the book is the narrator's um, sort of maybe feeling that she has to think about whether or not she has to choose between art and motherhood, um whether kind of becoming a mother will impede her art, whether she wants to devote her life to art more than having a child. This is something that's, you know, really interested me throughout my thirties. You know, you you have certain possibilities that feel kind of open to you in your twenties and I think as you get into your early thirties, you know, the choices about whether to focus on career or family or creativity, all of these things become 
more prevalent and more pressing. Uh, and the book feels to me like a really, it's one of the most interesting responses I've seen to that particular sort of existential dilemma. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, and I, I mean, obviously some people feel they can do both and do do both. Um, but but that is a that's different from just doing just making art it's different to just make art and to make art in the context of a family and other responsibilities and um and i think in some ways for myself the book is also not just trying to decide between the two but a desire expresses a desire not to have a child and how to give oneself permission to not have a child because that's also really hard and it's it's in very hard for a woman still to say that I don't want a child and how do you justify that to everybody who thinks you're unnatural and to, even to yourself who thinks like am I making a big mistake am I making a big mistake and not experiencing this this biological destiny and this thing that the mothers speak about so enticingly and you know and and to give up such a huge life experience even if you don't want it it seems hard to give it up even if you don't want to do any of that stuff just to not know it. And if you're a curious person, to not know something so universal feels like a loss, even if you don't want to change a single diaper or like usher somebody to school, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I personally, you know, knew from a very young age that I didn't want children. And I would yeah, be asked same. when I was about 10 or 11, you know, do you want children? I'd say, no, absolutely not. And people would say, you know, you'll change your mind. And, you know, I'm 36 now and here we are. Yeah, um, yeah. And but you know, nonetheless, obviously, I'm I'm now of an age where lots of my friends are having children. Yeah. And you know, there's a there's a certain type of loneliness that I have that that they will never experience again. Um, and you know that that is interesting to me, and in some ways that's kind of difficult. But nonetheless, I feel pretty certain that you know, like you say, the the responsibilities of um, of, of bringing up children um uh, you know not not ones that i'm kind of wired to deal with yeah and i, I kind of feel the same and i feel like i i would actually rather have that loneliness than have the endless relationship mm. you know that's just what i would rather i mean for me it's partly just a, a kind of extremely pessimistic and probably depressive worldview as well i kind of look at the world around me and i just don't want to bring another person into it yeah and it's funny and that's you know i was talking to this woman who said she'd read my book and she wrote me an email and she said why isn't my decide she has no children she's in her 40s or 50s maybe she said why is my deciding not to have children not considered an act of maternal love and it's sort of what you're saying like there is something loving towards one's so-called children and not bringing them into a world that you think is a, not a good world to enter. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, of course, I mean, we we're talking earlier about the risks of doing something versus not doing it. And the flip side of it is, you know, you might bring somebody into the world who might make it substantively better. Or worse. Well, exactly, yeah. Um. <laughs> In my case, it would probably be worse. <laughs> Same, and I can't look after houseplants. So, yeah. you know. But houseplants don't cry. No, no, that's true. They don't wake you up at like five in the morning. Cats do i found yeah but yeah um that's that's about my limit <laughs> yeah i mean you know the we we've spoken a bit before about some of the reviews for this book um and you know the sense that the the book has like unsettled some of the reviewers maybe um so did you feel i mean you know i think 
writing anything without fear of publishing is probably not worth it. You know, if you don't fear the publication of something you've written, then you probably didn't need to write it. That's nice. Um, but um, maybe we could talk a bit about, um, you know, where how much sort of anxiety you felt about publishing this book um, and, you know, whether or not you kind of, you ever write or, or edit or redraft um, with potential responses from reviewers and readers in mind? Not reviewers, um, but in publishing this book, I thought in a way that I never did before about common commentary from Twitter mm. because, you know, I was like, well, one line, one wrong line or one line that I can't stand behind could destroy the whole book if somebody gets their hands on it. You know, we just... And I don't think I... I think there was one thing that I cut because of that. I thought this... And it wasn't a very important thing. And at first, you might think, well, that's kind of a compromise. But in some ways, it actually just makes you more conscientious and think, well, do I stand behind the sentence? Do I stand behind this sentence and this one and this one and this one? And by the time the book is done, I really feel like I can. And I... Um, but I... I, I will, I write for readers and, and not for critics. I don't think that critics are the best readers of books because they read quickly and to have an opinion often. And readers read as like books should live in your life like another person. There should be something very natural about it. You pick it up when you, it's the exact right time to pick it up, whether that's 10 years after the book was published or that week. And then you read it at the pace that makes sense. You don't pick it up because you've been assigned it or because you've decided to assign it to yourself, read it quickly, and then write your response. You live with it. So I would never write for a critic. Um, and I don't I don't like reading criticism. I, I feel like more often than not, it's, it's not interesting. It doesn't give me anything back. And it really aggravates me and sometimes enrages me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like kind of literary theory. Uh, you know, I find that very interesting. You know, especially when it's expounded over a but that's not a newspaper a length critic. of time. Exactly. Yeah, I don't read book reviews. No, no, I don't think they're about art. They're about selling mm. or not selling. You know, shall I help this author sell her book, or should I help her, or should I should I impede that in yeah. some way? You know, thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, Do you read reviews of your own work? Um, some, not all of them, but yeah, I do. It's it's just because I'm curious and I can't help it. And if people are talking to me about it, then I want to see it for myself. I know. I never trust anyone who says, oh, I never read anyone talking about my writing. I just, oh, just, <laughs> just, just don't believe you, mate. I just... <laughs> yeah, you never look in the mirror either. Yeah, right. <laughs> but what about kind of responses for, I mean, you know, this goes for how should a person be as well as, as motherhood. Responses from sort of friends and family. I mean, I speak as someone who's kind of written a memoir and had huge anxieties about losing family and friends who, you know, through the transitional process, I'd worked very, very hard to keep on side mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, face the risk of kind of alienating them all over again by having to write about them. Yeah, it's scary. It's scary to give the book to somebody you love. It was scary for me to have my boyfriend read the book and my mother and my, my close friends and any friend who read it. I was very afraid at first of what they would think or say or think about me or what I was saying. And it all in the end turned out fine but yeah it's um but you kind of have to show it to them you can't just publish without showing it to them yeah absolutely yeah um, yeah i had to have some very 
difficult conversations with people. Um, I mean, I gave the, I had a difficult conversation with my parents in the writing of Trans Memoir, and it was actually when I got quite near the end of the final draft, so I knew exactly what was going to be about them in the book, and um, and could then sort of say to them, "Look, are you happy with this? Are you not happy with this?" And it's this? important to do that because I think that if they are unhappy with something, unless unless they're not respectable people then their unhappiness with it will make you make it better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, another thing I had to keep in mind was was my, my parents, you know, they're not literary people at all. Like My mum was a nurse and my dad worked in the plastics industry and they're both retired by the time I, um, I published the book. Uh, and they did both read it. They don't read everything I write by a long chalk, but they both read that. I actually gave the proofs to my dad and I was really, really, really nervous about talking to him and I'm I was sure. speaking to him on the phone. And my dad was just like, oh, yeah, I'm like nearly at the end of your book. And I was just like, oh, yeah, what do you think? And there was this incredibly, um, I wanted to say pregnant pause there. <laughs> there was like this your stomach incredibly out. difficult pause. And my dad just said, oh, there's a typo on page 72. Yeah, my dad always points out the typos, too. There's something kind of relieving about that. It's yeah. like, oh, you don't actually care. Like, I can do my own thing. Well, exactly. I mean, I then sort of explained to my dad that we had an editor and we were <laughs> yeah. going through the proofs and that wasn't really why I sort of wanted to know from him. But if the typos were the biggest problem he had with it, then fine. There's something really relieving. Like, yes. when I was a kid, I used to show my dad my stories and he, you know, I was like eight or nine years old and he would always just hand them back to me with the typos and with right. the grammar and the that's or with the post you know it's with the where the apostrophe is supposed to be and at first I was really upset about it I was like can't you even see what I am doing like what do you think of it and he's like I'm an engineer I don't I don't feel mm. like qualified to say and then and now in retrospect I think that was the best possible response because it gave me this feeling of freedom like I can write whatever I want and my own father doesn't care you know <laughs> so how can anyone possibly care you know um, not care in a negative way but uh, you know um, and I think it also gave me this feeling like like I can write and when I publish people read but they don't actually see what I've read or they don't mm. feel it like all they see is the surface like the grammar so that also gives you a feeling of freedom like I can write anything because no one's taking it in <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's wonderful we have to sort of start wrapping up the conversation now um, you've been listening to Sweet 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM with um, Sheila Hetty uh, and I wondered sort of how you sort of see your art now, having written motherhood and reflected on that, and you know what you're what you're hoping to do next. Um, I've got another book in mind that I want to write, and I've got some unpublished things that I'm trying to figure out whether to publish or not. It's always hard to know how much to publish um, because I don't know. I always have this feeling of like not wanting to the world to be sick of me the way that I get sick of people and culture, you know? And so there's always this feeling of wanting to hold back rather than give too much. So I don't know if that's legitimate or not. And I think, you know, it's important to to work at the right pace for you. I mean, yeah. you know, I talked about Kathy Acko when I was on with Chris Krause and Kathy Acko had this precept that she wanted to publish a book every two years. And I think... That's a lot. That came at a cost of developing her style, you know? Yeah, well, this book that I'm considering is... I've been working on it for seven years as well, so it's it's definitely done. But yeah, do you want to flood the world with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wish there were more authors asking themselves that question, quite <laughs> frankly. Uh, not that I'm going to name any names, but... Um... <laughs> After the show, you can name some names. <laughs> Get down to the gossip. Maybe, maybe that's a future show for uh, <laughs> for us here here on Suite Two One Two. 
Okay, well, I think we should we should wrap up the conversation there, Sheila. It's been such a pleasure to um, to have you on and to spend an hour with you talking about your work. Um, uh, I'm sure you've all figured out by now, but Motherhood has been published in the UK, and um, Sheila's previous books are also available. Um, I'm actually away next month, so july's episode will have a guest host tom overton will return having done an excellent uh, episode in march the last time i was in the former ussr which is where i'll be again um so it just remains for me juliet jakes your host to thank you for listening and i will be back with sweet 212 in september with our second series here on resonance thanks for listening goodbye This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.